The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 107. I'm going to read the text that we're going to be in and then pray and we'll get rolling here. Psalm 107 says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and out of the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield, By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm and the psalms that, Lord, put to words so many of our, our thoughts, our, our uh, emotions, Lord, our experiences to life, of life. And Lord, I pray that you would use this psalm to show us something of you and your steadfast love, Lord, to help us to see that you are a God that we can cry out to, and you are a God who will deliver. 
So Father, would you do what is impossible on our own and soften our hearts, open our eyes to see something new and fresh of you this morning. And Lord, would you build our longing for you, for relationship with you. So Lord, be with us, and Lord, would you be honored and glorified in our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. About a month ago, um, I got a, a message from my mom that she was uncovering a number of just things, relics from the past. And a number of these were some essays that I had written around eighth or ninth grade. And as we just mentioned before, I just spent the last week with middle school, so when you're around middle school, you kind of think about those weird adolescent years. Um, but it's, it was a funny thing for me recently to go back and read some of those thoughts as I'm, I'm trying to make sense of my own identity, um, make sense of the world around me. But one of the essays or resp essay responses that was included there was under the category of a troublesome experience. And so I, I'm going to share a, a part of, of this essay response, not because there's anything particularly insightful in it, but because it illustrates an experience that was very real and distressing to me as a young lad. And so hear this. One day I was at a friend's house and we were trying to see how far we could hit a tennis ball with a baseball bat. We were in a cul-de-sac, and I wasn't hitting the ball very far. Finally, I got the pitch I wanted and creamed the ball clear across the cul-de-sac, over a house, and into someone's backyard. The hit felt so good. It was the best one of the day. We walked over and saw the ball in someone's backyard. This person had a tall fence, and none of the gates would open up. I wasn't smart enough to go and ring the doorbell, so I did the stupid thing and climbed over the fence. I threw the ball back over, and my friend and brother started walking back to my friend's house. I started looking around the backyard for an easier exit other than climbing the fence again, and then I passed the doghouse. As soon as I passed it, a huge German shepherd came running out. My first reaction was to run, so I did. The dog chased after me. And this wasn't your friendly everyday dog. He wanted to eat me. As I began running and screaming, the dog caught up with me. I was wearing sandals, and one of them fell off. And then the dog came and bit through my shirt and somehow my boxers, leaving holes in both of them. I came up the fence and jumped over it so fast. I was so scared. I learned that I should probably ring a doorbell before I jump over a fence. It's the kind of look before you leap. I should have respected the guy's property. Plus, before, I didn't notice a beware of dog sign on the fence. <laughs> that is something that I will never do again without asking. This incident may seem kind of small and insignificant, but to me, it makes me feel happy that the dog didn't take me down and eat me. Now I'm scared every time I see a German shepherd. <laughs> and it's still a little bit true today. So I, I share this story, not as a message to you mothers that you should hoard everything from your kid's childhood, but, but more of the sense that many of us have experiences in our lives that prompt us to cry out for help, to desire deliverance. Many of us have experiences where we are troubled and distressed, longing for some help. So in the scenario that I just shared, we can laugh, we can make light of it, and express gratitude because now we have perspective on how things turned out. But for many of us in other situations, we, we can be in a situation that's acute, acutely worse. And something traumatic has happened that has lasted or resulted in significant lasting consequences. What if the dog had eaten me or harmed me some way that changed my future? Others of us can be amidst a perpetual and unresolved trouble, and there appears to be no immediate escape. And the psalm covers some of those, well, and actually both of these, both some of the acute and some of the chronic needs and troubles. So the, the psalm is meant to help us, uh, help to provide some perspective on trouble and distress on a, on a big macro level as we consider who God is in our trouble. Um, but I think it's also going to be helpful to us on the micro-circumstantial level, what God might be doing amidst the trouble as we cry out to him. So with that, um, just a couple of comments on 
on the book and then make a couple main points. So uh, the background of this book is you'll notice uh, Psalm 107 is the first book of book five of Psalms. So Psalms is one book with 150 Psalms, but there's five, it's broken up into five different smaller books or units. And um, it's sometimes kind of hard to discern, is, is there something super clear that makes this book one, this book two, this book three, and there are some patterns that, that scholars observe, but one of the unique things here in the transition from book four to book five is the relationship that uh, 106 and 107 have with each other. So if you look there at um, 106 verse 47, it says this, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So you see, in this context, they're calling out for God to save them, to, to gather them from among the nations so that they can give thanks, right? So they're amidst distress, and they're calling out God to work. But then if you look at the first three verses of 107, it says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered, past tense, in from the lands. And so we see something of a call for help in 106, which um, I'll talk about in a second. But then here we see a giving thanks, kind of a past tense looking back of what God has done to gather and to deliver. And so with, with uh, these two psalms and with book four and five, some people generally look at book four as psalms somehow connected to Israel and in, in Judah in their exile as they're calling out for help as they've been removed from their homeland. And then when we come to book five, some people have thought that book five better typifies a reunited or restored Israel. And if these two books have any <laughs> indication of order and, and how they were assembled and put together, that might give us a clue that there is something about a looking back post-exile here. But with that, in the end, like most of the Psalms, this doesn't, it doesn't give us an author. It doesn't give us circumstances in which we can say this is for sure the, the context of what they're talking about. And I think with many of the Psalms, this is actually intentional because the Psalms have more of a universal application to the church for all ages. And in some ways, it's God's kindness that it's not too limited so that we can relate and identify with it. But with that, I think we should have some of that in our mind of the context of, has God just delivered them, uh, Israel and Judah, from their deliverance or from their exile across the lands and brought them back together? So with that, this Psalm 107 is written with the vantage point of having some perspective on how God has worked. And so it's from this perspective that I want to make two primary points. Um, and then at the end, we'll wrap up with a, a couple of applications. So the first main point this morning is this. Life is full of all kinds of trouble and distress. Life is full of all kinds of trouble and distress. So as we read this psalm, you probably noticed that there are four different pictures or scenarios of trouble and distress laid out. And in, in the ESV, it has that kind of identified with the some wandered, some sat in darkness, some were fools, uh, some went down. And so we see these, these four different pictures here. And in that, each psalm or each little picture has a repetitive pattern. You see a trouble. You see a cry out to God. You see salvation and, or deliverance of that. And then you see a, a thankfulness. And so if you go through, um, and so actually what we'll start to do is I'm going to go through each one of these one by one and identify the immediate, immediate trouble or distress that's there. And then we'll come back around and look at what God has done to save. So the first one of our scenarios here is that what I'll call exile or homelessness. And that starts in verse 4. He says, Some wandered in desert waste, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. So pause there. So we see that some, 
some people are out in the desert, in the wilderness, and this could be after they were exiled from the fall of Judah, as people had to scatter and they had no homes and were looking for a new dwelling place. And perhaps as they're transplanted, relocated, trying to find a home. Um, others have suggested this could even be uh, an overlapping idea with Israel wandering in the wilderness also when they had no home. There, there's a couple experiences that we can draw back from history. But either way, the point is clear that their trouble is that they are lost, they are homeless, they are physically exhausted, desiring a home, lacking food and water. And so for a number of us, especially in, I say, the modern Western world, this, this is a reality that we don't often brush up to in the same kind of way. But for those, I'm sure a number of us have had experiences where, where we have lacked food or lacked water or lacked something, and we've seen how that has amplified an internal distress, right? And, the, and the, the physical realities of not having a home and not having food, that is trouble for sure. But the accompanying distress and taxation of the soul that the physical has on the mental and emotional is significant. And in many ways, um, we this morning are, are promoting uh, uh, Compassion International, right? And, and their whole mission is to help alleviate poverty around the world, especially with helping kids and giving them a future. But as we engage this reality, we see that there, there is something troubling about that reality, but then also troubling about what is the state of somebody's soul in that. And here, the passage points to this. It says, their soul fainted within them, right? So this isn't, they just need a meal, but there's a psychological state that is deprived and difficult. There's a lack of hope. And so we, we see this globally around the world. We see this with a number of refu- refugees that have fled countries around the world today. And yes, they need physical needs. But again, the mental, emotional distress, what would cause one's soul to faint is also what, is what the psalmist is, is pointing us to here. And so maybe some of us have been without of home. Maybe some of us have not known where our next meal is going to come from. But it's probably more likely that a number of us have experienced this kind of distress through unemployment, maybe underemployment. Um, maybe we've even felt this recently with stock market going up and down, and what am I going to do with my retirement account that now is squat? So the distress comes at all people in all different kinds of ways. But here we see that there's something about the trouble and the lack of home and, and the, just the physical need that causes these people to cry out. So think in your life, where, where have you lacked basic needs? Where have you felt threatened or troubled? How has that affected your soul? How is that affecting your soul right now if you're, if you're in something? So that's the first tr- trouble or picture we see of exile and homelessness. The second one here is in verse 10 is what I'll call enslavement. Verse 10 says this, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. So again, this could totally be another situation where they've been exiled to Babylon and some people have been enslaved and put in prison. It could be a reference to Israel being uh, enslaved by Egypt in some form. But again, either way, we see that there is some form of enslavement that limits or restricts one from living freely. And so how, how might we relate to this kind of trouble today? You know, there, there's been a you know, number, number of discussions in our world about slavery and things that's happened along those lines. We see still the existence of, of sex trade going around the world. But for us today, I, I think perhaps it finds itself more so in an enslaving affliction. And so some of us here in this room have experienced or experienced or experiencing drug abuse, alcohol abuse, perhaps sex or pornography addiction. There, there's a number of things 
that could be an enslaving affliction, an enslavement to our own desires that, that just cannot be overcome. So we, we can talk about enslavement on a couple levels, but here the trouble is that there is someone is enslaved. They are not free to act as God has created them to. They are held back by something, oppressed by something. So that's the trouble. But then we see the distress comes through as it says, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. So again, enslavement is one thing, but how does that land in our hearts? How does that humble us? How does that cause us to, to fall down and to feel that there is no one that can come and help and relieve from this affliction. So the psalmist here, he sees a correlation between the, Israel's enslavement and their rebellion and the, the, the spurning of God. And so for Israel, their exilic enslavement was definitely a consequence of them failing to trust God. Right? So that's, that's one unique thing about this situation when we talk about other things along the lines of, of slavery or sex trade, there's, that's not a judgment on someone necessarily for disobedience. There, there's a lot of evil that just happens in the world, happenstance, which we'll come to in, in the last category to some degree. But the idea is that we see that there, there's, again, some internal distress that comes in a spiritual darkness and a hopelessness that overwhelms, one, overwhelms one's heart as they sit in the shadow of death. There's no prospect of someone to come and free and deliver them. So the question for us is, has any one of us been in this kind of place before? Enslaved to something? Enslaved to someone? Felt that there's no escape? Well, here's, here's another trouble, again, that we can identify with and the distress associated with that. The third scenario we come across, verse 17, what I'll call folly. Troubles articulated like this. It says, some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. So this idea that some were fools, not just foolish in an unwise way, but Often, if you look at what folly is, especially in, in Proverbs and throughout the Bible, folly is often identified with, with wickedness, with an a dis, open disregard to the ways of God. So here we see that some people are afflicted, that their folly has led them to disregard God's natural and biblical law, that their folly has maybe led them to disregard God's wisdom for what a good life looks like. And it results in consequences and a suffering affliction from that, right? So as one goes against the design of God, they move farther away from him and the consequences pile on and pile on over and over on top of that. And so for us, we are foolish today in a number of ways, just in our general world around us, and perhaps we, we relate to this ourselves here in the church. But there's foolishness in a few ways that come to mind that, especially in our modern Western world, there's just unrestrained appetite. An unrestrained appetite um, for, uh, for sex, for lust. An unrestrained appetite for desires of power, control, influence. Maybe an unrestrained appetite for, for food or worldly experiences. And that would be folly when that goes against the way that God has set for us to live. But it leads to negative consequences and builds on itself the further we go into that. Another way that our folly might show up is through unbridled anger, abuse, violence. And this is a folly that again goes as it, it dehumanizes another person. It creates relational distance. It builds guilt and shame. 
It leads to one, just the self-focus of one and self-justification of one. Another folly might be gossip, slander, or lying. As as one lives in the shadows to promote themselves and their own opportunities. But as we know, the one that talks and breaks down and works behind others, that leads to isolation, it leads to lack of trust, it leads to shallow relationships. And so that, that's the trouble, but the distress here that we see is they, uh, they loathe any kind of food. And an interesting thing here um, that the ESV doesn't pick up is it's actually their soul loathed any kind of food, which is, which is a significant point only in the sense that as it talks about the, the distress, it continues to come back to the heart or the soul, something inside of us over and over again. But their, they, their soul, they loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. So this distress turns in on that even the good experiences of life, of food itself, is no longer enjoyable. The experiences that God has given us as a gift become just common, mute, not joyful in any way. And in that, there, there's, there's a challenge. And so the, the, the sinful ways and its accompanying afflictions may make it so that someone is unable to just enjoy the basic things of life. And this leads and builds into an eventual distress that someone might even despise of their own life as they approach the gates of death. There's, there's a, a spiritual sickness that grows in this that starts with folly. And folly always starts small, but it snowballs and builds into bigger things if unchecked. So this folly and disregard of God's law or his wisdom leads to an internal dis- distress of despair, of apathy, of depression. Have we experienced this in different ways? What does folly look like for you? Is you neglect what God has set out and perhaps hardened and calloused your heart against what he's intended to the degree that you're not able to enjoy life in the way you once were. But it brings you to a point of needing to call out to God. So that's the third picture of of trouble and distress. The fourth one is in verse 23. I'm going to just call this random providence, which is kind of contradictory, but random to us, providence to God. Random providence. The trouble is is stated that some went down in seas and ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind and lifted up the waves of the sea, and they mounted up to heaven and threw... uh, uh, then went down to the depths. So as you notice this, these people just appear to be going about their normal day, every day-to-day life. They're doing business when all of a sudden a giant storm overtakes them. And you love the imagery of the high to low. If you guys have experienced that in water in any form, it is quite scary. But this trouble comes upon them and there's a reality of, of a randomness that things in life happen unexpectedly, right? So uh, this, this is a little bit like my German shepherd experience that falls under this category. Random event. Perhaps there's, for some of us, there's an unexpected medical diagnosis. There's an accident that alters our lives. There's a loss of job. So the random providence of God And I think we relate to this on so many different levels. It's always coming at us in different ways. But we see that's the trouble. But what's the distress? The the distress is, again, their courage melted away. And again, the language here, unfortunately, the ESV is the idea is their soul melted away. So we, again, see something about the soul, something inside that's happening here. Their courage or their soul melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. 
So this overwhelming circumstance can lead to a state of distress that one feels helpless. And the idea of wit's end is they literally have no more ideas, no more wisdom, nothing to try. And we see that the end of themselves is, is shown in that they are thinking, acting completely irrationally. They reeled like drunken men. So all of us have experienced this in some way, but do we see how it connects with, with God's providence? So the question for you, is there something seemingly random yet crazy happening in your life that leaves you feeling out of control, that has led you to feel like your soul is melting away? So as we think about all four of these different scenarios or, or pictures, we see that trouble comes in many forms. And this list is not exhaust, exhaustive, but it is categorical and diverse. We see that there's trouble through consequences in our life. There's trouble just through random circumstances. There's trouble through physical situations that we're in. There's trouble through emotional sin issues that come up. And these scenarios cover it all. So, but the question is, for God's people, what, all, what does all this trouble and this distress point to in the psalm? And I, I think this is the beautiful, like, kind of climax building point of this whole passage that shows up in each of the accounts in 16, 13, 19, 28, verses those are, and it says, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. So in the diversity of experiences, things that are deserved and undeserved, we see God's people cry to God, cry out to him in their trouble. So the question for us is, what does it take for you to cry out to the Lord? What kind of circumstances lead you to do that? Why do you cry out to God sometimes and not others? We see here that these scenarios are examples for us to identify all kinds of trouble and distress and how God's people cry out to him. And how does the Lord respond? Well, this sets up our, our second point. The steadfast love of God redeems and restores people from all kinds of trouble. The steadfast love of God redeems and restores people from all kinds of trouble. So he says, then they, it says over and over, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And in this salvation, we can go through each of these examples real quickly and just see how God delivered his people. How he heard their cries and saved the children of men. So in exile and homelessness, when they cry out to him, he delivers, and it says he led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. So he's, he, he delivers them. He delivers them to a city. And then there's a thanksgiving, for he has satisfied the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Praise God for making a straight way for people who are lost and don't have a home, who don't have food. Thank, praise God that he hears their cry and delivers and meets them. Secondly, for those enslaved, they cried out to him, and he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and he burst their bonds apart. And in Thanksgiving, it says, for he shattered the doors of bronze and cut into the bars of iron. Praise God that those who are enslaved and cry out to God, he will deliver. He hears their cries. He won't let them sit in that. Praise him that he's stronger than any of the oppressors or any of the enslaving afflictions that we face day to day. Praise his name. Third, for those in folly, they cry out to him. And he sends out his word and he healed them and he delivered them from their destruction. So those in their own folly and sinful wickedness, they cry out to him. 
They deserve this, but they cry out to him. And he delivers them from their destruction. And he puts a thanksgiving in their heart that leads them to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and to tell of his deeds and song of joy. Praise God we have a God that delivers us from this distress, from our own sin, our own wickedness, that digs a hole that we can't get out of. Praise God that he hears our cry, even in that situation. And praise, uh, the last one, we see that God hears the cries of those in the storm. And he says, and it says, he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. And in thanksgiving, he says, let them extol to the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Praise God that even in the random circumstances of life, we can cry out to him and he hears us and he will deliver. Behind each of these acts of salvation, we find the heart of God who hears the cries of his people. And he moves towards them to deliver them. Can we just take a minute together to rest in the fact that we belong to a God who does this? We belong to a God who has a heart for the needy, the oppressed, those that are in dire circumstances, those that have dug themselves into a hole that they can't get out of, those that deserve death and sin and judgment. He has heard the cry and the steadfast love of God rushes towards them. These pictures in the psalm draw our attention to one, this primary attribute of God, his steadfast love. It's because of his steadfast love that he cares for us amidst our trouble and distress. And so we see that the psalm highlights a couple of ways that the, the steadfast love of God cares for us by both redemption and restoration. In redemption, it shows up in verse two, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands. So God's redemption comes in the form of deliverance. He comes to help claim his children and support them and lovingly bail them out of the difficult circumstance that they are in. He takes on the debt, he pays the price, he bears the load so that those who are vulnerable and needy might be relieved of the trouble. That's the idea of redemption, redeem. He comes and saves and delivers. And it's on full display here in these four pictures as the Lord continually redeems and saves his people from all kinds of trouble and distress. He identifies his people as his own flesh and blood. He hears their cries and moves towards them. But not only does God redeem his people, he also restores them. And this is, when we get to verse 33 here, we're given an image of God's restorative power. And this is imagery that just like, I, I just love. It just <laughs> lands, lands with me in, in an incredible way. He says, 33 through 38, he turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. And conversely, he turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. Um, a number of years ago, I saw a kind of a photo time lapse, and I, I shared this with the youth in probably a couple of contexts before. But there's a photo time lapse of the uh, Atacama Desert, which is in Chile. And it's one of the driest deserts in the world. And every five years or so, there's a, there's a big rain that will fall on this desert. Their annual rain yield is tiny every year. 
But every so often there will be a big storm and a big rain that hits this desert. And the beautiful thing about this time lapse is you see this barren wasteland. But then two weeks after the rain hits, you see a diverse species of flowers and life that all of a sudden just springs out of the ground. And here it, it draws us to the significance of the transforming power of water and how water restores a barren wasteland. So if you want to look at the video, I think it's on YouTube, it's on Vimeo. But it just, it just draws a, a wonder that here in, in the driest, most dead place in the world, that somehow, some way, there's a bunch of dormant seeds sitting there just waiting for water, waiting for life. And as soon as they get that water, they spring to life and completely transform the landscape. Well, in a similar way, us being created in the image of God, we are like that seed in the desert that's barren, dead, disconnected, and all it needs is just some water a source of water to bring it to life, to transform it. And so in here we see landscape, nature imagery to actually point to something about the soul, how God transforms the soul. And so what, what does this redemptive and restorative power look like for us today? Well, the illustration and imagery of God restoring lands Again, it best lends itself to the restoration of the human life and soul. But it's best exemplified by none other than Jesus himself. He is the restorative living water sent to transform the human soul. So as we think about the list, for those who are hungry and thirsty, Jesus is the bread of life and living water who fills so that we may never hunger or thirst again. He is the one who nourishes and transforms the barren landscape of our hearts and lives to be spirit-filled image bearers. For those who are in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners of affliction, a slave to sin in our rebellion, Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God thus breaking the enslaving grip of sin and death so that we might become obedient from the heart. For those who are suffering affliction due to their own folly, despising of life and its experiences, Jesus has suffered affliction on the cross himself, taking the penalty for our sinful folly. And in his final days, he despised of life itself, crying out and trusting himself to God, his cry was not heard so that our cry might be. He was forsaken that we might be accepted. And here he comes offering a healing word. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are overtaken by the random and spontaneous storms of our life, Jesus is present with you in the storm. His voice is able to make the storm still with one word and deliver you to a safe haven, perhaps a golden shore. If not in this life, for surely, without a doubt, in the, the next eternal life. So the psalm kind of points that Jesus is the living water who redeems and restores all things in its time. He is the one who blesses in this life and will bless even more so upon his return. He is the living water that completely transforms the desert of a soul into a flourishing garden full of blessing and fulfillment and security and abundance and fruitful yield and resilience. Praise his name if we see this, if we understand it. We are left with no other response than thankfulness. And that's where the psalm starts. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. So ho hopefully that's welling up in our hearts as we think about what God and what Christ has 
redeemed and, and what he's going to restore. But also there's, there's a warning here. In verse 39 he says, when they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. So up above, we see that Jesus is the judge who can withhold living water from an unrepentant wickedness. He will pour out his contempt on those who have oppressed and diminished both his name and his people. If you desire this kind of life or have wandered, cutting yourself off from the source of water, cry out to him and he will deliver you from your barrenness. And if not, we see the warning, the end of that. But for all of us, it is only through our being diminished and brought low through, again, the oppression, the evil, and the sorrow that we will be raised up out of affliction and truly blessed. We must see our needy and helpless estate so that we might cry out to the Lord in our trouble. And as we cry out, he will deliver. And this is true of the life of a new Christian and a mature Christian. They look very similar, and they're built on the same idea, that we are both all are to continually cry out to God in our neediness, knowing that he hears our cries and trusting that he will answer in some form now and in an even greater way upon his return or our return to him. We need to consider and remember that his steadfast love is for us and that he hears our cries to deliver from trouble and distress. So what as we apply this? What, what's the point of the psalm? It, it would be incomplete if we don't apply it. Incomplete if we only cry out to God. And it gives us a couple things here, and these are brief. The first, the saving work of God leads us to thankfulness and praise. So as God saves, this psalm is filled. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, said four times. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds. Let them extol him and praise him. This is the pattern that is to be a repetitive pattern in, in our lives. When there's trouble, we cry out to God. When we cry out to God, God delivers us and saves us. When God delivers us and saves us, then we give thanks and praise to his name. That's the repetition over and over again. And oh, are our lives troubled? Don't we know it? But don't you think that's part of the point? That God is doing something in the trouble to draw us closer? And that Christian maturity is more quickly returning to him and seeing our need and, and being led to a more exuberant thankfulness and praise? That's what we need to be moved towards here. So I ask, is this pattern representative of your life? Do you get cut off somewhere in the cycle? Does your, do you, are you not inclined to cry out to God in your trouble? Or if you cry, do you not have eyes to see how he might be delivering and saving you? Or if he delivers and save you, saves you, do you give him thanksgiving? Do you bring that full circle or are you still stuck in 106, looking, Psalm 106, looking for something? And maybe he's provided there all along in Christ, <laughs> in his spirit that we need to walk in and trust in. So the saving work of God, he, it leads us to thankfulness and praise. But the saving work of God also leads us to consider or discern his ongoing steadfast love. And this is where the last verse lands. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So here are two components, a singular and a corporate dimension to this. Whoever is wise, let him consider it or attend to these things. So each of us in our individual lives and circumstances, we need to see where God is saving and working, where he has delivered us when we cry. Make note of it. We need to have eyes that's looking for his salvation and deliverance giving him praise and thanks. Let's do that individually. 
But here there's also a corporate dimension. Let them, plural, consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is to be done in the context of the church. This is how we are built up and edified together. And in fact, this is, this is something that I, I hope that we can be able to do in some form and, and incorporate more so into our services, but to share God moments, when moments that God has worked to deliver and save and encourage and do something that only he can do. How do we provide opportunity for us to share that with each other so that it can be our joy? Just in the last couple of weeks, a brother in our church recently had some just really awesome provisions by God that I got to share in and talk with him. And it was edifying for him, for sure, because God's doing some awesome things. But it was also edifying for me, too, to be able to share in that and find joy in that. So as a church, how do, how do we do that? How do we share with each other in such a way that leads to thankfulness and praise in our congregation. So I'll just put that out there. If God is doing something or has done something recently that deserves thanksgiving and praise, not for your glory, but for the edification of the church and for his glory, come share that with me. We want to find an opportunity to share that with the church in some way. Because to withhold that is actually going to be to our neglect. Let's, let's learn how to praise God together, to be thankful together. So as we consider the steadfast love of the Lord in our, in our lives, we can consider our past. We can look in the Bible at a psalm like this to see how God is saved, right? We can look at our life. We need to recall. We need to consider the ways that God has saved and restored us in the past, we need to look in the lives of others. But also as we consider this, we need to consider the present. How is God calling you to faith in him right now? How might your present circumstances be pointing you to a steadfast love? But we should also consider the future. Consider what God has accomplished through Christ, what he is saving us to, eternal life with him, the fullness of joy. And the steadfast love of God has embodied us, embodied for us most in the person and work of Jesus, who is the anchor of hope for the souls of men. So may the psalm help us to be attentive to the steadfast love of God, that we might see how he has already provided for us through Jesus, but also how he will continue to hear our cries and deliver us on this day and every day forward. So let's, let's pray and ask that God Give us eyes to see that. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.